Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Depending on what part of the planet you're on, if you're at the far east, I know you're already way, way asleep. If you are in America, well, it's just around 5 p.m. In Africa, maybe 11 p.m., depending on what part of the continent you are. That's why I always say good morning, good evening, good afternoon, whatever, because you are listening and watching us from all around the world, so depends on what you're doing. So today we're talking about the upsurge of coup in West Africa. And there is no other person that can help us shed more light in this. The good guy, a fantastic journalist. This guy slays stereotype. He breaks the record all the time. And it's no other person than David Undei. David, welcome to Atlanta Discuss. Thank you for having me. Yeah. David is not new on Atlanta Discuss. He's here for the second time, but the first time he was here with an audio. You all know David. David is a Nigerian journalist, activist, and author. And uh, I'm going to tell you about one of his books later that I think you should all read. I just started reading. I'm, I'm in page 10 now. Hopefully, I'll finish this by weekend, you know. So I'm sure you've all read about conflict for jihad, the Boko Haram story. That's my own favorite of all, amongst all you. I really like that. So back to the topic of the day, David, we're talking about upsurge of coups in Africa. And I want to know, why do you think there's all of a sudden an upsurge of coups in the continent? Because from what I have before me in Sudan, it's like a war. We don't really know who's in charge. I, I'm Daniel and the other guy. They're also offshoot of the old regime, you know, in, in charge. Debbie is dead. It is Debbie. His son is ruling. That's military government. Recently in Niger, those guys don't look like they're going anywhere. And also Burkina Faso, every, you know, you're just going to the west of west of uh, Sudan, that's Chad, west of uh, Chad, that's Niger, west of that is Burkina Faso. And we also have Mali and uh, Guinea, you know, and today we heard there was a fault coup in Syria alone. What's behind all this? Why is that that also all of a sudden? Well, um, there is no there's no single reason. Um, as is so often the case, there's um there's a there's a series of, of events which have lined up in sequence to create the conditions that have led to this, not least the fact that um if you've heard of the, the domino theory, which basically states that um where one domino falls over and tips another one over, things continue in that sequence. So starting from the very first set of dominoes, arguably going back as far back as, um, so I think this the, the first in this recent series of coups, I think took place in 2021, if I'm not mistaken. So going back as far as then, yeah, which was, um, was that Mali, I believe? Yeah, so, uh, Mali in August, Mali was in August. Right. So going back as far as then. Mali was 2020 August. So you're right. Right. So yeah, going back as far as then, and then it followed by uh, Burkina Faso. Then so basically, how it tends to work historically in Africa, well, definitely how it worked in the 80s was where there's a coup in one country in one region, followed by another, then other countries in the region follow. So if there are two coups within two years of each other in the same region. You can expect to see a whole tranche of coups. That's definitely what happened between the 70s and the 80s in West Africa, where at a point there wasn't a single country in West Africa that was under civilian administration. 
from being democratic in the late 60s going into the 70s. They all, one after the other, Nigeria, Ghana, one by one, they just fell in a domino sequence. Um, I hope that's not what's happening this time around. And the reason I hope that's not what's happening is because um, Nigeria and Ghana, which are basically, um, Nigeria, Ghana, and Cote d'Ivoire, which are the three main powerhouses, if you like, in the ECOWAS region, um, if they were once again to fall to military uh, dictatorship, then we will be back to the 80s and early 90s. Um, nobody wants to see that happen. Um, we've gone through a lot to get our, well, it's not a, you know, functional democracy in many senses, but we've gone, we've come through a lot to get our simulacrum of, of democracy to this point. Um, so nobody wants to see a coup happen because military dictatorship always somehow ends up being worse, regardless of how bad the civilian administration is. So, um, but uh, nonetheless, the signs aren't looking good. Um, there are in, in each country, each country has a different pretext or a different reason for stating why um, a coup was supposedly necessary. So in the case of Mali, it was a purely security driven issue where the soldiers basically said the president, this um, civilian administration gives us, doesn't give us anything to work with. Um, the Islamist insurgency in the country, which is becoming increasingly bloody and increasingly brutal, is moving through unchecked. And we, you know, the guy in Bamako is just speaking, he's just speaking French for us, just speaking grammar. Let's get him out of there. Let's, you know, let we think we can do better. Um, they haven't really done better, but you know. Something similar happened in, in Burkina Faso. They thought they could do better because of the security crisis. Again, they haven't really done better. Um, this a similar, a similar pretext has been invoked with Niger as well. So they claim, or the claim is being made that the um, ousted president Bazoum was actually collaborating with terrorists who were wreaking havoc on Niger. Now, whether that is true or it's not true, we have no idea. That's just their side of the story. What we do know is that um, ever since the 2011 invasion of, of Libya, um, the Nigerian border with Libya has become sort of the window to hell for the, for the Sahel and West African sub-region sub because the huge stockpiles of weapons which were held by the Gaddafi administration, which was by far the most heavily armed government on the whole in the entire continent of Africa, those huge armed stockpiles are falling into all sorts of hands. Um, so there are all sorts of non-state actors that are just crawling through the Sahara Desert right now, coming into the Sahel. And Niger, unfortunately, is their number one, um, is their first port of call, coming in from Libya and Algeria. Niger is their, is their stopover point from where they move over into Nigeria and the rest of the sub-region. So Niger has taken the, the brunt of it. So the claim now is that, well, this president was actually um, at, at best wasn't being useful and at worst was actually collaborating with these guys and that France allegedly was also collaborating with these guys. Again, how true that is, we don't know. It could be true. It could also not be true because soldiers are not renowned for being truth tellers. So we'll find out eventually whether they are telling the truth or not. But all in all, and then um, uh, the most recent attempt, which we heard about today in Sierra, Sierra Leone, um, the the reason apparently behind the purported attempt was um, a, a political split 
in the country where supposedly, uh, again, we don't know how true this is, but supposedly there was a, um, there's an ethnic sort of difference between the uh, people who are at the top, the upper echelons of the military, including those who were arrested, and the administration of Judas Madabiu. Apparently, they come from different ethnic groups, and there's some sort of friction between them. They don't get along. So, if you go you compare that to Nigeria, I guess it would be something like having a military that is led by northerners, and then a sort of belligerent administration led by a southerner. That kind, something similar. Not that exact comparison but something similar in Syria. that's supposedly what the situation was which has then which was then exacerbated by the fact that um following the results of the, the immediate past Sierra Leonean election um the Sierra Leonean version of INEC just like in Nigeria has not been able to explain how it came about the results that it announced and every credible international observer who to um, observe that election basically said this was not a credible election. Um, there are so many interesting parallels to draw between the Sierra Leone election and the Nigerian election. In fact, um, I remember a few weeks ago, this was in May, I was at Chatham House in London with the head of the Sierra Leonean opposition, Dr. Sumara Kamara, um, who was the main opposition leader, candidate who ran against um, Julius Madabio in this election. And there were so many things he said. It was like I was listening to to somebody a, talk a about replay, a replay of what's happening in yes it was a play-by-play -play, it was a play-by-play -play, you know, action replay of the nigerian election what even made it even more surreal it was like an inverse of nigeria the Sierra Leonean opposition party is called the apc so it was just a really weird <laughs> weird experience but yeah um so in general what i can sense is that everybody has looked for what they consider to be their pretext to carry out a coup um, I don't think things are necessarily worse now than they were four or five years ago for, my, for many of these countries. I think, I think things are uniformly bad. But I think now that they've seen their contemporaries do the thing, I think the khaki boys have been beaten with the bug. That, well, what are we doing? Look at what our mates are doing next door. So I think that contagion is what is spreading. Um, again, we hope it doesn't spread um, especially to those three powerhouses, Nigeria, Ghana, Cote d'Ivoire. We hope it doesn't, because if it does, then, you know, That's it's all. a wrap. Okay, let me let me quickly ask you this. Everywhere else in West Africa, you know, seems to be a spectre of stolen ballots. You know, the elections in Senegal, like, you know, like the guy wanted third time. I'm sure because of the military that he didn't push too hard, you know. Togo, you know, Fare, Nasimbe has been there forever. Alone in Benetou is misbehaving, you know, and uh, everywhere you go, recently in Sierra Leone, like you just told us, and it's the most populous black nation in the world, Nigeria, the biggest leader of all, is not looking too good. Do you think the population, the people, the poverty stricken population of Africa, the downtrodden, so to say, do you think they are taking solace in the military? I think in um, to an extent, um, they are looking for, for reasons. <laughs> yeah. They are looking for, for reasons to, to think of this as a positive development. I think for people who just need change of some description, things have been the same for all these years. Things are not looking like they're changing anytime soon. And then the civilian administrators who have turned themselves into civilian dictators who are trying to 
you know, modify the constitution to run for third term, all those kinds of things. I think people are just tired and are ready to accept anything at all that looks like a change. So which is why, for example, in Niger, you've been seeing civilians going around, you know, dancing in the streets and marching in support of a coup, which is a very weird phenomenon that you rarely ever see. People actually marching in support of a successful coup. That's, but I think that's more of a commentary on, on how disillusioned people are with the leadership that has been delivered by the supposedly democratically elected presidents and prime ministers as compared to what where they think they should be. Um, overall, um, history tells us that it's still, it's still a mistake. Um, history tells us that military dictatorships somehow end up being even worse than the, the civilians they were supposedly, they supposedly rescued us from. Definitely in Nigeria, that is the case. Um, however, it's going to be very difficult to explain that to people. For example, in a country like Nigeria, how do you explain that to them right now? You can't. You know, so yes, I think people are looking for um for this. Um, I'm looking for a for a, a turn of phrase to it, but suffice to say that they're 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 trying to make um lemonade out of the lemons that they've been given. So as far as they're concerned, well. The democratically elected people, they couldn't do it or they wouldn't do it. So now it's up to the, you know, if the khaki ones are the ones who will do it for us, then, you know, let's support them. History tells us that that romance between the people and the khaki boys doesn't last very long. History tells us that. Yeah, six months. But yeah, well, let's, let's wait and see. All right, so we've been talking to David Undei, Nigerian activist, journalist, and author, great guy. So David, I just something I stumbled on just before you came on, it's about Sun Cornell in Ghana. Let me read what I read. It said, if ECOWAS wants stability in the sub-region, it must first ensure democratic accountability in every country. They constantly turn a blind eye when leaders violate the law and impoverish their people until things get out of hand. I think that makes a lot of sense. It does make a lot of sense. So that, my next question, why I read that is, I'm going to ECOWAS, the seven-day ultimatum to Nijay. ECOWAS have been backing. They didn't back for Mali. They did not back for Burkina Faso, and so on and so forth. Do you think they will bite in Nijay? Absolutely not. Um, I, I think, first of all, if they had the ability, if they had the capability to bite, they would have done so already because it's clear that they're really not happy with this coup. They're really spooked by it, um, particularly Nigeria. Niger the Nigerian government's clearly um, not happy with a coup happening on its doorstep for obvious reasons. Um, certainly the Tilingo administration, which already faces so many legitimacy challenges, feels as if this thing could be giving ideas to the, to, to the boys at Dodan and, and, uh, and uh, Mogadishu barracks. So definitely they're not happy about it. But the, fact, the very fact that they gave a seven-day ultimatum, I think that, that even says it in itself. If they were going to do something, they would have done it. They don't have the ability to do something. Because first of all, um, the money to fund a military expedition into Nigeria, where's that money going to come from? Does Nigeria have that money? No. <laughs> Does anybody in ECOWAS have it? I mean, if nobody in ECOWAS, if Nigeria doesn't have it, then who in ECOWAS has it? Nobody has the money. So except that mission is externally funded. I don't see how it's going to happen. And uh, you know, at this point in time, is it political? Even if the likes of France 
who clearly are not happy about the coup, even if they want to fund such a thing, is it politically feasible right now for them to be seen engaged in military adventurism on the African continent, especially since everybody still remembers what they did just over a decade ago in Libya? I don't think so. I don't think so. So I think it's saber rattling. Um, and I, I also think that the response by uh, Guinea and Burkina Faso has nailed, put the final nail in the coffin of the idea of an invasion of Nigeria. Nobody is going to risk turning West Africa into a cauldron of infinity war because they are trying to put one bazoom back into the state house in Miami. It's not that important. Interesting, because I was just going through the statement by the government of Mali and Burkina Faso, and they, they were emphatic that if anything here, it was very emphatic. Let me just read something there, you know. They said they expressed fraternal solidarity with from the from the people of Burkina Faso and Mali with the people of Niger, and they decided to fully take responsibility and their de destiny in their hands. That if anything happens in Niger, it's going to be war. They were yeah. very, very specific. Yeah. But, you know, the, my fear is Nigeria, for example, you know, Tinubu, we both know, is, is struggling with a lot of uh, legitimacy problem, a lot of baggages. But 95% of all incomes, at least 95% of all the money Nigeria is making now, is spent on those. Yeah. You know, all this subsidy we save there, I don't, you know, it, it doesn't really amount to anything, you know. And I, I found out, you know, Preparing to for this program in my research, I found out that some Nigerian military guys that fought Boko Haram in Borno have been owed allowances, even yes. Papaka's first term of a Buhari presidency. So yes. Nigerians are actually motivated economically, financially, and the military, you know. Also, another way I'm also looking at it is that I think it will require a, a Nigerian leader that is of Northern origin. We will try that kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Or because, even if yeah. even if not of northern origin, yeah, mm -hmm. at the very least, somebody that the military actually respects. The, that I, kind of thing, yeah. I made this point yesterday that the only time in Nigeria's history as an independent country that the Nigerian military has been deployed officially outside the borders of Nigeria for any kind of large-scale operation was in the 90s in the Liberian and Sierra Leonean civil wars. And who was the head of state then? It was the serving military general. Who is the head of state now? As, as far as the military is concerned, it's nobody. It's so nobody. how is the military going to then take on that sacrifice? Okay, we're going to, we already have problems funding our basic operations. Funding operations against Boko Haram and IPOB, who are basically civilians, is already a problem. Now we're going to deploy outside of our borders, in a hostile foreign territory, fight against an actual military, not militants and bandits and terrorists, an actual trained enemy. And in Nigerian military, let's be very clear, it's a very well-trained military. Oh, they are. And they're battle-hardened. These are not uh, uh, Boko Haram terrorists. These are not ESN, IPOB militants. These are not Niger Delta militants. This, this No, these are not bandits from Zamfara State. These are actual soldiers who have been trained by US Special Forces for years because the, the town known as Agadez in Niger is like the transit hub for migrants heading toward the coast of Libya. So for many years, the EU has been funding the increased militarization of Agadez. They've been pumping money into the Nigerian military. 
money and training. So these guys are a different kind of challenge to anything the Nigerian military has ever faced in its existence, even including the Biafran military. These guys are a different kind of challenge to that. So is the Nigerian military then going to risk losing face and losing men for the sake of one volatinubu? No, they won't. Yeah. No, yeah. I, let, I, let me buttress what you're saying. You know, most Nigerian army is more populated by northerners anyway. And yeah. we've had uh, leaders in Nigeria that are not even of Nigerian origin, they are from Niger. You know, yes. we've even had a Chadian, somebody of Chadian descent. I mean, Bwari didn't hide it that his ancestry is from Maradi in, in yeah. Niger. So I, I don't think even an invasion of Niger by Balatinum in any way or form is going to be popular in the in the north. Yeah, even the border, they say they close. There's really no border between the There's no border. <laughs> you can't call it a border. It doesn't exist. Exactly. So I think I think they, they mishandle it. I think what also complicates it for Nigeria right now is that we do not have that special quality crop of diplomats, you know, like we had in the 80s, the Anyakus of this world that could have mediated. I if I were Tinubu, actually, I think Bari should have been my, you know, my envoy to Niger. But clearly, I don't even think, yeah, I mean, if he had the capacity, you know, because if his ancestor is a retired general, you know, he should, if I were a Latinum, like I said, but I, I just don't see no reason why they didn't think I mean, that the, the, the problem with that is does the does the Nigerian regime see Buhari as a friend, or do they see him as a friend of Bazoum? Because the perception was that Buhari helped Bazoum. That's true. So you can get elected. So the pro, like I, I feel as if on the Nigerian side, we need to accept that um the Nigerians are in the they they have the upper hand, basically. Um we have sort of boxed ourselves into a corner. Politically, we box ourselves into a corner by going all out um during Buhari's administration to support the regime which they have not ousted. And then in the uh, on, on that Tinubu's short time in, in office, we've gone and made the very sort of unforced cardinal error of coming out to act belligerent that were in a give issue ultimatums we have no business issuing and ultimatums which we have no power <laughs> to enforce. So I think we just need to accept that we've goofed. The Nigerians have the upper hand. Um, Niger is extremely is of, is of extreme strategic importance to Nigeria's stability. So the last thing that Nigeria wants to do for whatever reason is to create problems in Niger. People forget that the only reason why Nigeria isn't directly, in as much as we faced severe security problems since 2011, the only reason we're not directly facing the fallout of the vacuum created by Gaddafi's death is because Niger is a buffer between Nigeria and Libya. Nigeria is just one border. It's just two borders away from Libya. I agree it's with just you. Two borders away mm -hmm. from Libya, and the Libyan border with Niger is basically it's it's ungoverned territory. It's no man's land. There are all sorts of non-state actors who are armed, heavily armed, roaming through the Sahara all willy-nilly. Niger is the only buffer, semi-reliable buffer that Nigeria has between. Nigeria and total chaos in the North Sahara. So if you go and destabilize Niger, you have brought that total chaos to your doorstep. Absolutely. So I really hope 
I really hope somebody in Abuja is seeing the same picture that we're seeing. I think something else they should look at is that there are over 300,000 Nigerian refugees in Niger already. You know, I, I, somebody said, I don't know, I think it was Senator Shio Sonny that said something like that, that we have over because of the Boko Haram issues. Yes. Also, I think Chad and Niger have justified themselves militarily better than Nigeria. Much better. Yeah, so much I think if we try anything funny there, we're going to have our fingers bought up. So, Debbie, yeah. now, I, the way I see it, I mean, you know, here we, it's, we discuss, it's always interactive, so we always have an opinion to I think Northern Cameroon is Islamic, Northern Nigeria, Northern Benin, Northern Togo, Northern Ghana, Northern Ivory Coast, and all that. You know, can we blame all these issues entirely on colonialism, whatever the instability we have and all that. Because if Northern Cameroon, that's uh, Garwa, Marwa, Northern Nigeria, Northern Benin, Malanville, Parapu, all the way to Tamale, Boike, and Ivory Coast, they're all similarly maybe related, you know? Yes. Do you think if the colonialists have done the sharing in a better way? I mean, it's not fair to say after 1960, which most African countries got their independence. We've still not gotten our acts together. But should we blame it entirely on colonialism? No, 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 we can't. Um, the colonial, the actions of colonial powers obviously played a role in all of this, um, arguably a foundational role in all of this. But at the end of the day, um, yes, there has been some form of neocolonialism. But the problem, the thing with neocolonialism uh, 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 neo is that it's not direct control. So um, even if there's an outside instigator who allegedly doesn't want your country to become stable or is funding people who are destabilizing your country or just wants you to remain poor so that they can get your resources on the cheap. But even if that is the case, um, it still needs your own acquiescence to work. That entire scheme still needs you to agree to it before it works, right? Um, with if you if the local um, leaders or rulers as they as they made themselves out to be had any inkling of um, enlightened self interest and how to actually what it actually means to run a country and the potential benefits if they actually run a country with a very you know just a surface amount of 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 um, competence we wouldn't even be having these conversations right so. When you look at the things that the people are complaining about, like the reasons why they are happy that these coups are happening, for example, and it's they will say, oh, um, so for example, the in Niger they said, okay, Niger supplies approximately one third of the electricity supply of France via its uranium, which is obviously nuclear energy, it's, it's nuclear fuel, and yet up to eighty percent of Niger has no has no access to electricity. Um, is that France's fault? France certainly didn't help, but is that France's fault? No, it's not. France, has de France is definitely not part of the solution. We know that for sure. France is, I think it's fair to say France is a bad actor in, in the African or in the West African space. I think it's fair to say. But France is not the reason why there are some very basic banal things that you've not been able to sort out. France is not the reason. And the, the evidence for this is that in the same on the same continent, um, countries that are, that exist within the same neo-colonial sphere of influence, they don't have those problems, right? If you go to a country like, you know, a, a country which 
is not successful by any stretch of the imagination. Cameroon, that's not a successful country, but the problems they have in Cameroon are much superior. <laughs> I mean, you'd much rather have Cameroonian problems than Nigerian problems. Let me, let me put it that way. You'd much rather live in Yaoundé than in Miami. Miami or you know, anywhere else in Nigeria. They're both under the neo-colonial influence of France. They both use the same currency, but you know, they're chalk and cheese. The difference in HDI between Cameroon and Niger is like the difference in HDI between the UK and Nigeria. It's huge, it's massive. So is that because France, France, um, France is less neo-colonial neo with Cameroon than they are with Niger? I don't think so. I think it's because for whatever reason, Cameroonian leadership has been just that little bit more competent, little bit more competent than the Nigerians. I believe that's the case. So I think in a lot of these instances, and this is not just in West Africa, this is an Africa-wide thing, it's very easy to focus a lot of energy on blaming the Europeans and colonial powers for the nonsense that they did on the continent. And they did a lot of nonsense. Let's be very clear about that. They are still doing a lot of nonsense. However, a lot of these sort of very visceral base level problems are things that you don't need, you don't need to be, you know, fully politically independent in charge of everything for you to have light or access to electricity. There are just some very basic things, roads, you know. These are not things which, if you go to some of the very the poorest countries in Eastern Europe, very like countries where their per capita GDP is not much higher than Nigeria. So Ukraine, for example, the per capita GDP of Ukraine, I was very surprised to learn, is about 3,000 and something dollars. To put that in perspective, Nigeria's per capita GDP is about 2,500 and something dollars. So Ukraine is just officially is barely, it's just a little bit wealthier than Nigeria on a per capita level. And yet, you know, the, the problems they have in Ukraine, I mean, peacetime Ukraine, I mean, the problems they had in Ukraine versus the problems they have in Nigeria, again, chalk and cheese. Would you rather live in Kiev or in Abuja? You understand? So, it's, so it's not so much an issue of, yes, uh, of there being colonial. Yes, there's colonial influence, but colonial influence or no colonial influence, there's no white man that came and pointed a gun to your head and said that this budget for building this road or this budget for connecting this community to the, to the national grid, or this budget for building this dam to generate electricity and to, to irrigate farmland, or this budget for this or for that, that instead of using it for what it's meant for, share it between you and your friends and then go and buy a villa in Tuscany. There's no white man that made you do that. You did that yourself. Sure. So I, I believe that there's a, lot of, um, there's a lot of responsibility that is escaped by constantly invoking this colonial, colonial, colonial. Yes, there was, you know, Africa is a is a victim of colonial actions, yes. However, after 63 plus years, you know, can you really say that, that that's all there is to it, that you don't have any, any parts in the problem or you don't have any part to play in the solution? That is all about one white man somewhere. I don't think the white people are that powerful. I think we give them too much credit by doing that. It's as if we're just a bunch of dolls I agree with you because if you look at India and Pakistan, you know, now India, I think it's the most populous country in the world. I yes. mean, they are, the, they are the largest democracy. You can even call them the most volatile democracy because Indira Gandhi was assassinated. There was no coup. 
Gisal Rajiv came to power, he was equally assassinated. There was no coup. There's no record of historically of any coup d'etat in India, which shows a lot of stability. In Africa, I'm sure a country like India will have had some countable amount of seven or eight. Yeah. And the nuclear superpower, also Commonwealth country, colonized by Britain, you know, they've not lost uh, uh, focus on their culture. And now their, their country is larger than that of Britain. They've overtaken Britain. Yeah, the Prime Minister of UK is one of India, I think, yeah. you know. Yeah, so it shows how India has shown that things we use, we call disadvantage in Nigeria, the multi-diversity, the mostly religious and stuff like that. India has used it to its advantage. It doesn't mean India doesn't have their issues. And if you even look at Commonwealth countries, you discover that, I mean, India, Pakistan broke out of India, subsequently Bangladesh, in uh, Malaysia, Singapore broke out of Malaysia. Sudan is also there, North South Sudan. So which brings us to my next question. Do you think Nigeria is too big? I mean, Nigeria, I mean, one out of every sub-Saharan, one out of every four sub-Saharan African is a Nigerian, one out of every six or seven black people in the entire or the entire planet is a Nigerian. Do you think Nigeria is too big to manage? Because it does look like, yeah, that that. Even even if we decide to work together, the multi-ethnicity, the religion, it will be a difficult thing. Do you think Nigeria should go in the way of Sudan, Malaysia, or India, being the same Commonwealth trajectory, you know, historically speaking? That's that's a very difficult question to answer. And the reason it's a very difficult question to answer is that if you had asked me this question four or five years ago, I'd have instinctually said yes. Okay. Let's let's um devolve into smaller units, self-governing units that you know, for example, the cultural difference, or it's not even cultural, the civilizational difference, civilizational gap between north and south, for example, is basically it's pretty much already like two different countries. You know, so the the way people live in Damaturu and the way people live in Ikeja, you can't they do it's there's no there's no proof that it's the same country, right? However, the problem with that is um, the means you say that, okay, Nigeria is too big, so let's split it into two or three. What I've come to understand over the past three, four years is that if you give them the chance, every, every local government area in Nigeria will want independence. If they are given the opportunity, every local government area in Nigeria will want independence. And this is not just the this, this is not just the hypothetical um, thing that I'm saying. We've seen evidence of this. We've seen regions that have been so a state that was carved out of another state, for example. So a state like so I I served in Ekiti State, right? Ekiti State has has a state anthem, right? And the state anthem translates to uh, Ekiti Ekiti has 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 gained freedom from the from the yoke of Undo, basically. And it's like, okay, Ekiti, Ondo, you guys are like the same people. Like, why, why do you have an anthem that is talking about that? It, it almost sounds as if it's some kind of like Nelson Mandela liberation struggle to remove Ekiti from the oppressive weight of the Ondo. But like history doesn't really doesn't really bear you out on that. So, but there is that real sense of everybody wants to run their own little package. So if you split. Nigeria along maybe the 1914 lines that, okay, the amalgamation in 1914, that should be reversed. So there should be a North 
and the south, and there will be two different civilizations the way they once were. Okay, that's fine. That south that you think is going to be one cohesive country, then you discover that the half of the eastern region of that south will say, no, this other half of the eastern region, they want to dominate us. Uh, blah, blah, blah. This one will say, my name is Chuke Mecca, but I'm not Igbo. You know, <laughs> and then all sorts of confusion. And then in the Western half, they will, they will have the Benin will say, you know, we, are, we don't want to be dominated by this one. The people in the Midwest will say they are not Yoruba. But does that and mean that, we are sorry to interject you, but does that mean that if Nigeria has a people's constitution, you understand, a constitution purely written by the people in agreement, things will work better? So the, the issue I have is at the end of the day, so we're talking about the AFCFTA, for example. As a way of bringing Africa together, so, so everybody should be able to trade freely. Everybody should, should be able to move freely across borders. Freedom of trade, freedom of movements, freedom of capital. Um, you, know. in that context, if you are still talking about breaking off into little independent republics, how is that helping the AFCFTA? You know, because the the entire point of the AFCFTA is to make Africa a smaller place. Mm -hmm. But I feel as if you know, even if it's under the guise of addressing historical wrongs that were committed in Berlin by partitioning Africa along lines that don't make sense, even if it's to reverse that, and then you end up creating 50 or 60 new countries, has that really helped Africa? I don't, I think we need to accept that, yes, these countries that we have been um, partitioned into without our consent, these countries did not necessarily make sense. Nigeria, for example, makes no civilizational sense. That is true. That is an incontrovertible fact. Nigeria is a place where you have 500 and something ethnic groups jammed together against their will. We get that 100%. But we also have to ask ourselves that after 100 plus years together, that alternative that we think we're looking for, what exactly does that alternative even look like? Because in the context of an AFCFTA, in, in the context of an African Union with the Agenda 2063, and then this other, the two goals seem to be completely incongruous. So what, what I think the solution is, is there should be some sort of devolution of power, definitely, from the central government. And this is not just in Nigeria. This is also countries like DRC, Ethiopia, countries which are very big. And then the further you go from the capital, the less effect, the less important the government becomes. Government becomes more notional for, for that from the capital you go, which is why IG, every, every Inspector General of Police issues statements, um, dismantling checkpoints as soon as it takes office. And within three weeks, everybody has forgotten. Because <laughs> once you leave Abuja on government territory, right? I believe what needs to happen is these big countries in Africa need to devolve power, a lot of power. From There's too much power in Abuja. The presidency, and the seat of the president has too much power. A lot of this power needs to be devolved to the states, impossible to even to the federal, to the local governments. So powers to construct rails, construct power stations, do power grids, everything is centralized. Everything is on the exclusive list now. So if you are, say, um, Imo and Abia, two states next to each other, under, the, under current Nigerian law, you are not allowed to build an interstate railway linking two of you. Only the federal government has the power to approve it. So two states can't do that. All those powers need to be devolved. Under Nigerian law, you can't build a power station of your own and supply your neighbors with electricity. So for example, you have a very big generator 
and it's, your generator can carry your whole street. You're not allowed to sell power to your whole street. The Nigerian constitution doesn't, doesn't allow you to do that because that's on the exclusive list. So everybody needs to be hooked up to this giant failure called national grid. You know, all these powers need to be devolved, definitely, so that people feel that they are more in control of their own destiny. And then people have less of a reason to find a scapegoat from another tribe for being the reason why they have not achieved anything. So yes, definitely that constitution needs to be rewritten. I think there have already been attempts to do this via the so-called national conference. However, the problem with the national conference was that it went and created, was it 48 states? I don't think we need that. We don't need that. Not in, yeah. not in Nigeria. But yeah. let me, I've got two more questions for you before you go. I mean, so now with what's happening in West Africa, I mean, Sudan, the coup d'etat, the upsurge of coup, which is what we're really here to talk about and all that. Now, are we, is it free to say, or is it fair to say that Africa is not the new battleground for Russia, China, and the Western world? Because it does look like even most of these military coups are being backed by Russia or China in some cases, or even if not directly backed, they're getting recognition and support from them. So is Africa, it has always been the playground, no, no, no doubt for Western powers and the Russia and the communists, you know, because in the past we saw how uh, the Western world supported everything bad that came out of Africa, like the Mobutus of this world, the Bokassas of this world, the Idiamins of this world. Now, Singbe, Yadem, Matthew, Kirikou, just to mention a few. Yeah, the Paul Bia that you mentioned that is giving them stability in Cameroon. Paul Bia spent six months in Geneva in that hotel, and he, had, he only comes home for independence. Paul Bia lives Martin. in Geneva. He doesn't live in Cameroon. Uh, he lives there. So he only comes when it's independence or something ceremonial. So my question is, are we the new playground? Is it that we cannot eschew that? Because the Asians, like I mentioned India earlier on, haven't gone through the same colonialists they were colonized to. They kind of, the Malaysians, the Indonesians, they broke away. They, they found an identity and have the need for themselves. Is it like so difficult for us to do in Africa? Um, I think it's starting to happen. I think a large part of the reason why forming that identity you've spoken mm -hmm. about has been so difficult in Africa is that for, for most of our post-colonial history, information has been controlled by the, by people in power. But I think, especially over the past 10, 15 years, when pretty much everybody in an urban center in Africa has internet access now, the speed with which information is moving now is something that African governments and even colonial players outside Africa no longer have any control over. And it's no coincidence, by the way, that a lot of Africa's internet infrastructure was built by the Chinese. That's no coincidence whatsoever. That's also a Chinese power play. It's not benevolent, but it's a power play on, mm -hmm. on their part as well, because they are they they have they see an active um, uh, a strategic benefit for themselves in getting Africans to strategically revolt against you know that those historic mental chains. So I think that the newfound speed and freedom of information, access to information that young people in Africa have now is going to definitely um, shift that needle. It's already shifting the needle. I think we started seeing small signs of it, small things like NSARS. That mm. simply couldn't have happened previously. 
Previously, the only way to organize any sort of large-scale civil disobedience was using a centralized means. There has to be an organizing body in the center, a group of people who reach out to people, they come to an agreement, which means there's always a way to neutralize it. You can get to the people who are at the center of it. But this time around, all of a sudden, you had the decentralized movement. Nobody's in charge, but everybody's reading from the same trip sheet. That was only possible because of the internet. That was the reason this, such a thing could exist. Same thing going into the election campaign. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, a candidate that was a total no-hoper had just between, you know, around this time last year, he was still taken as a joke. So the punchline, Peter will be for president. What do you mean, Peter will be? You know, you won't get 100,000 votes, internet noise makers. And in the space of nine months, this person was going toe-to-toe -to -toe with people that have been running for president since I was a child. In the space of nine months, that happened 100% because of the internet. The internet is changing things. The access to information is changing things. Um, I think that as this becomes increasingly the norm, young people in Africa will, will build those networks that the Asians built 30, 40 years ago between themselves. Um, the, um, the historical ways that we've been divided that free access to information is going to erode those divisions. We've started seeing signs of it now. We've seen, I mean, for how many years, the idea of a, an Igbo presidential candidate being sort of having mass appeal, it was fanciful. Maybe that maybe that happened in 2050. Like, look, look at Peter Obi. You understand? He's not an angel from the sky or something. He's just a random guy. But look at him. That happened again because that access to information has made it such that young people can now connect with each other and can now have build networks and connect based on issues that are bigger than those Absolutely. things that historically have been used my, to. Like one of my guests last week said something that really pricked my conscience. He said when he was younger, that when they watched James Bond, it was like, oh, that was all there is to movies, James Bond. Subsequently, music was just Michael Jackson. He said, because my question to them was, is there hope for Nigeria? You know, we're talking about Africa and all that. I said, is there really hope? And his answer was, look, right now you have Nigerian actors, musicians competing at the highest level in the entire world. So he said that gives him hope. And that's buttressing what you're saying, you know, exactly. the, the internet age. And now Africans are competing. So which, which is, yeah. that really answers that. Now, yeah, my last question. Do you think Africans are democratic people? Is that the solution to our governance problem? Must it be democracy? I mean, I'm not a, a proponent of military rule, you know, but it does look like even in Asia, you know, we had Suato in Indonesia that was there for a long time, the benevolent dictator Mahatma Ahmed was there in Malaysia for a long time, the almighty Lee Quignon, the Singapore guy too, was there for a very long time. Could it be that? We also need that big man, you know, the Kagame type of guy, all those Ayadema, but somebody that knows his onions, not particular, because that's not democratic in my opinion, because the Asians did it, somebody there for a long time. So my question is, is democracy the solution to our system of governance? Considering how we live, how we do things, that big man syndrome? I think that over the next 10 to 15 years, we're going to answer that question. The young people of Africa are going to answer that question. Honestly, if I'm to give you my opinion, um, I would personally, my, 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 I always skew 
toward democracy. I have a personal bias. And the reason I have that personal bias is because I was born under the military era. And I have a visceral dislike for military administrations, for, for dictatorships. However, as you have, as you have rightfully mentioned, um, there have been, there are examples, chiefly from Asia, showing that um, it's possible to make progress as a as a country, as an economy, as 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 a society, without necessarily holding lectures every four or five years, it's been done. Um, I don't like invoking this example, but the example of Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore is a very instructive one. Um, for me, the, the, what's what the Lee Kuan Yew example shows is that first and foremost, before there was something very interesting that Lee Kuan Yew said. He said that. Um, Democracy is very good, but that they have to be conditions for democracy to be useful. He said, for example, that there needs to be the population needs to be well educated, first of all. Because otherwise, if they are not well educated and you give them democracy, they're going to use it the way a child uses a gun, you give it to him, you shoot himself. And he said the second thing is that there needs to be a political system where there are two major political formations which don't actually, they don't actually disagree with each other fundamentally on the core issues. They just disagree on how the goals they have, which are the same goals should be accomplished. So like in the US, for example, both the Republicans and the Democrats agree on some of the most basic fundamental issues. Issues regarding personal freedom and liberty, issues regarding freedom of capital, freedom of trade, that the belief in the American dream, basically, that every man or woman has the right to, to aspire to, to make a success of themselves economically. What they disagree on is the vehicles through which that American dream should be conveyed. He said, what doesn't work with a democracy is where you have different political formations that disagree on basically everything. So in Nigeria, for example, um, broadly speaking, broadly speaking, there is there is a political formation. Historically, there is a political formation from the north and political formation from the south, both of which have two completely different, dramatically different worldviews. So one of them is like secular. Uh, broadly speaking, um, is favorable toward Western education and Western style democracy. Broadly speaking, um, is in search of economic growth and expansion. Broadly speaking, has some level of social liberalism. And then the other half is um, very conservative Islamist, is uh, eastward facing, is sort of has more, in, thinks it has more in common with Saudi Arabia than it does with, you know, Ghana, which is a few countries away. Um, has a very sort of almost parochial view on, on you know, social liberties and freedoms and things like that. So when you have those two formations competing against each other, what Likman you said is that that lays the conditions for violence. So in as much as if you had asked me this question three years ago, reflexively, my answer would have been democracy, obviously democracy, that, no question. However, I also have to be honest enough nowadays, as I get older, to admit that there are in fact conditions that can render a democracy moot. 
for a democracy to do what democracies are supposed to do, there has to be some basic conditions in place. So the problem is, the, does Africa have Lee Kuan Yews? The kind, of, the kind of men who can be strong men, but don't become the kind of strong men that turn into Bokassa and Gaddafi and Idi Amin. You know, I don't like using the term benevolent dictator because there's no such thing as a benevolent dictator. Even Lee Kuan Yew was not benevolent, but it, a, a, a strong man who respects his country enough to put its, its interest above his own. Do we have such men in Africa yet? I'm not convinced that because going by historical precedent, every single African strong man who claimed to have the interests of Africa turned out to be something else. The, the, I think the, the luckiest of all the African countries to have ever had a strong man, the country that didn't end up completely broken by the cult of a strong man was Ghana. Because their own strong man, Jerry Rollins, for reasons best known to him, wasn't, you know, he wasn't a Sani Abacha. I mean, he was a killer too. He tortured people too, but he wasn't a Bukasa. He wasn't an Idi Amin. How do you read Kagame, Paul Kagame of Rwanda? In lieu of this discussion. So, again, if I'd asked me this question three years ago, and I said he's, on, he's, with, he's up there with Museveni, mm -hmm. uh, Bia, Obiang, he has been in power for 25, 30 years. Please, I'm not interested. But again, as I get older, I'm I I hope this isn't what happens when people get older, that they start to negotiate with the world around them and start and they start accepting things they wouldn't have accepted before. But I think as I'm spending more time traveling around Africa now, and I'm sort of the reality of things is sinking more and more into me. What I'm seeing now is which which African head of state, for example, seems to understand the importance of economic integration of Africa, the AFCFTA? I think apart from Kagame, there are maybe two or three others. So, so yeah, there are very many things about Paul Kagame I categorically do not like. I think he has a dreadful human rights record. I think um, he's, in terms of going after enemies of states, um, enemies of the perceived enemies of states. He's one of the most notorious heads of states on the planet because he goes after people not just in Rwanda or in Africa, but even outside Africa. You know, he he's a very terrible enemy to have. Let me let me put it that way. However, I also think that look, as long as when he eventually leaves, because he will he's not immortal. He will leave eventually, or he will die in power. You know, whatever. When he eventually leaves. As long as the Rwanda he's leaving behind is a country that is strong enough that it, that it won't fall into civil war, like the way Libya fell into, into civil war after Gaddafi, if he achieves that, then I think I'm 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 at this point I'm ready to give him a pass because that's just how bad Africa is right now. That you have to take take what you can get. I feel like yes, in terms of being responsible for the crisis in Eastern DRC, yes, his hands are definitely dirty there. Um, I think Rwanda has a lot of questions to answer there. But certainly in terms of basically trying to position Rwanda as a country for the, that is ready for the 21st century, I can't think of many African heads of state that are doing anything remotely similar to what he's doing. So I, this is, it's like, it's like my conscience is biting me as I'm saying this. Like, I really don't, it's not something I would, that I'm proud of. But at this point, I would say I'm ready to give him a pass just purely based off of the fact that 
I don't see any other African or many other African heads of state in similar situations who appear to be anywhere near as forward looking or relatively forward looking as he is, which is not to say that Rwanda is great. Rwanda is not great. Rwanda is still a very poor country. Rwanda, the per capita GDP of Plateau states is higher than the per capita GDP of Rwanda. And Plateau is one of the poorest states in Nigeria. However, compared to where Rwanda was maybe 20, 15 years ago, you know, you just have to, you have to take what you can get. So three years ago, I'd have said, hell no, not interested. Nowadays, I'm like, I'm open to the conversation. All right, fantastic. We're still talking to David today. We're about to round up. David, before you go, I want people to know about your book, The Jungle, the one I'm reading right now, I'm looking at it, The Jungle, The Personal Journey with the Infant Terrible of Nigerian Genesis. Really, David has been doing a lot. I mean, uh, if you read West African Weekly, David is the brain behind it. I keep saying it, Conflicts for Jihad. The book Quran story is my favorite. I've read it so many times over and over. That's a very good one. And his expose on Bola Metinubu, extraordinary work. Keep it up, David. We're still on Atlanta discourse here with Embrace Humanity to disseminate the positive news in a world filled with a lot of bad news. We give a voice to the unread. We balance the information equation as much as we can. We search and discuss the facts always. We combine the best of the human race to get the best out of mankind. We serve as a bridge between the developing and developed world. We embrace business, arts, politics, IT, and faith-based issues. We don't shy away from the facts. That's why we always bring people that give us the facts. So David, final question. Uh, this week, the courts, the appeal court, presidential election tribunal in Nigeria, they finished everything. We're waiting judgment. What do you see? I don't want to put you on the spot here. You're not a judge, I know, but I know we're all following it. You know, um, you're almost becoming a prophet. I read your story on aviation and everything is coming to, 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 it's happening, so to say, you know. So, I mean, and even though they try to discredit you, everything you say always come to pass. I was going to ask you about Harare, but I know you don't want to talk about Harare. It's, it's past tense. No, it's but, fine. It's not a problem. I don't, I don't yeah. have any problem talking about it. Okay. Okay. So that'll be the last question after this. So what do you see happening from the uh, presidential election tribunal in Nigeria? Um, so I read a summary by... Outcome, so to say. Yeah. yeah. I know the judiciary is corrupt. Mm -hmm. Sorry, um, your picture seems to be frozen. Okay, you're back. So um, this morning, I, I I read a case summary um, regarding the, the presidential petition by a lawyer called um, uh, Emmanuel Ogebe. He's a, he's a human rights lawyer. He's based in the US. He's a Nigerian lawyer. He, I read, I, I take what he writes seriously. And the, um, the headline or the 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 subject of the email, because it sends out like an email newsletter. The subject was why Tinubu can't win in the PEPT. Now, if you read his summary, what he basically outlines is the fact that um, by, the, by the very laws and restrictions of, of their job, that the judges um, can only give certain types of verdicts when certain types of information or evidence are presented. What he was basically saying was that regardless of whether or not this judge or, or these judges are, are Tinobu's children, right? Regardless of what they want, even if they want to give this guy the judgment, 
there are certain poison pills which are in place, which just make it impossible. So for example, the, the uh, debate about perjury, that is just so watertight that the judge cannot rule in any other way than to claim, than, than to accept that perjury. But look it. Now, my issue is that um, I grew up in Nigeria. Uh, I have I've lived through the eras of Babangida, Shonekon, Abacha, Abdusalam, Obasanjo, Yaradua, Jonathan, Buhari, and now Tinumbu. So that's nine different Nigerian heads of state. In my time, my short 33 years, um, I can't think of a time when I, I followed a high-profile um, Nigerian legal um, process that involved somebody in power, in political power, and the results um, went contrary to the interests of the person that is in power. I can't think of a single time. The Nigerian judiciary, I mean, they should feel free to prove me wrong if they're watching this, but the Nigerian judiciary that I know is not an independent institution. And it's an institution which I, I personally believe that if you show a Nigerian judge two plus two and it, I tell him to give a verdict of what the answer is, if the answer being four means that somebody in power, like a president, is going to suffer a penalty. A Nigerian judge will tell you that two, that two plus two is 22. That has been my experience as a Nigerian. I don't trust the Nigerian judiciary at all. I really do not. I've had experiences, personal experiences in the, with the Nigerian judiciary that make me feel like, I'm not sure I really take these people serious. So it's all well and good saying, yes, the, the APC obviously, as we know, has not presented a case and has made very little attempt to present a case. However, the fact that they've made such a feeble attempt at presenting a case in itself is something to be worried about because I mean, as far as I know, you don't become an SAN by being incompetent at your job. So if an SAN is coming to court, and after making all that noise, presents one witness that contradicts him, and then they close the case there, I don't believe that it's because he's incompetent. Somehow, some, somehow I feel as if there must be, there, there's another place somewhere. So subconsciously, I keep expecting that, okay, I'm going to see where exactly that, that, there has to be a catch somewhere. This is too perfect. This is too easy. Something is going to show up out of somewhere. I keep expecting that to happen. So I'm sorry, but that's my own personal position. I feel as if the Nigerian judiciary, if it was actually serious about doing anything, could have done something as far back as November. I was part, we filed a legal action in November. You know, when the, the perjury issue first came up, we filed a legal action in the federal high court and all the judges ran away. No judge, the, the, the judge wasn't assigned to the case. They all ran away. They all excused themselves. They all ran away from the case. The guy the you that... mentioned, the lawyer you mentioned, uh, yes. I, I, I agree with him because I, I, I'm following this case. I've read everything you've written. I've sat down with a lot of supposedly educated people and they keep propagating the Balatinobu gospel about that some realistic ones don't actually know the details of what is against him. Some have seen it. And now my point, my reason for agreeing with that guy is that there's no 
paper, there's no document that Balatinobo has submitted to INEC to be present as original. There's none. Yeah. Not I one. Agree. Not one. Yeah. I agree. Took, I, mean, yeah. I did so, the story, so I'm yeah. aware. I agree. Yeah. Exactly. So now this is a guy that did not even put primary and secondary school in the presidential INEC form compared to what he did in 99. The minimum requirement for public office is school sacks. You understand? I mean, yeah. if you go to school in America, you must tender something before you get into college. You understand? Yes. And we all know that the Balatinumbu that went to Chicago State is clearly not him anyway. So it's the judiciary, no, because I know that there are even some even corrupt lawyers that are telling the judiciary now that, look, this one don't hook us for their call. We just have mm -hmm. to, because everything is at stake now. And with what's happening in Niger, which is all we're talking about, you know, <laughs> it's not looking good. The economy is horrible. It's really bad. And the, it's unfortunate for him also that because people say all elections are rigged anyway, but it's your turn. We are not going to forget about it. I want I want equity, justice, and fair play. I keep telling people, I support Peter over years. I've never met him. I just want the best for my country. So I think the appeal court will do the right thing. I, it looks like it's going to be three to the way I see it. This is my personal opinion. The, the Supreme Court is where I think they would they are banking on because 25% of FCT is sacrosanct. There's no way around it. The perjury is sacrosanct, you understand? All those fake documents, they are sacrosanct also. You know, so I think it's a Supreme Court that is you like. So my final so question, the, yeah, go ahead, so go ahead. Before we, we go to final, yeah. I was just going to mention that the reason I'm not so sure about that is, will they, like, I, I don't believe that they'll be willing to sacrifice their appeal courts and then go to the Supreme Court because I don't believe that if the appeal court gives a proper judgment, that the Supreme Court is going to overturn it. Because yeah, if, if the appeal court gives a proper judgment, for example, this is perjury, is the Supreme Court going to say, no, this is not perjury? How? That judgment has to be based on something. So, I, I just, yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. But I'm saying from the body language, you know, you know, the yeah. question I asked you from your crystal ball, what do you see? Right. So, from I have my no crystal, crystal ball, unfortunately. Yeah, it's not English. Yeah. But I'm saying, I think that the appeal court will not favor if, I mean, I say a three, two, I don't know which of the three or two will go or four against, you know, I'm not going to call them, but I think what I'm saying is that I think they are, they are banking on getting a favorable judgment. I'm talking just body language now. Yeah. How or why they depend on that, I cannot really say, you understand? But it does look like they're more comfortable with, oh, when it gets, because if you look at cases of Lawan, and Akpabio, you know, yeah. the yeah, they lost at the the lower courts, the appeal court. Was the Supreme Court that you know the sure. Imo State sure. tried too, you know, uh, what's his name, Uzodima, which the EU referred to that they were major aberration in, in in historical jurisprudence, you know. So it's just unbelievable. But what do we know? It's Nigeria. The more you look, the less you see. Yeah. So Arare, were you scared for your life? Um, I wasn't at the time, but after I got out and I spoke to people who were in the know, then I realized that I should have been. And I should, in fact, I shouldn't have gone there at all in the first place. Um, <laughs> again, I often make the mistake, the cardinal error of um, underestimating the extent to which bad actors on the African continent share information with each other. So it, because I travel around Africa a lot and I travel around Africa, I travel around Africa very easily. 
So it never really occurs to me. And I, I move around like a free man. I don't wear a mask like an ass or something because I expect nobody knows who I am. Maybe if I'm in Nigeria, I have to hide. But I mean, I'm in Ethiopia or Zambia, wherever. Who, who, do, who knows my father here? So I'm used to just being a free man and moving randomly around. But this time around, I thought I actually took some certain precautions because, for example, I actually called the Zimbabwean embassy in Accra because I was traveling through Ghana. So I actually called the Zimbabwean embassy first to confirm that do I or do I not need a visa? Because I know that that particular, I, I use a Ghanaian travel document. Um, so it's depending on the jurisdiction I'm traveling to. If I'm traveling to the UK, I'm classified as a Ghanaian. It's recognized as a Ghanaian passport and my citizenship is recorded as Ghanaian. So on my UK visas, you will see on the citizenship field, it says Ghanaian. However, if I'm traveling within Africa, sometimes they'll classify you as Ghanaian, sometimes they'll classify you as Nigerian because it, the nationality field inside the passport still says Nigerian. So it's a, it's a toss up. So I called ahead and I asked, do I or do I not need a visa? And the lady said, look, as long as the airline is happy to board you with your Ghanaian travel documents, then we won't have any problem with you when you get to Harare, that the airline is the, is the gatekeeper basically. So when you get to Harare, they've treated you as a Ghanaian parcel holder. You, it's fine, we'll let you in, we'll have a problem. And that's what she said. And the airline, which was a Ethiopian airline, was happy to board me, I boarded. And I flew, we flew through Addis and then, and then on to Harare. Now, when we got to Harare, I guess when I discovered that I had made a mistake was when I saw other people from my flights who were like Chinese and from some other places who didn't even fill in their landing cards. They just put their passports with the empty landing card, put $300 inside the passports, handed it over to the lady in the booth. She scrolls something on the landing card, I don't know what, she gives them their passport, takes out $300 and they're on their way. Now, I didn't withdraw money when I was in Addis. So apparently that was, the, that was like my first mistake because I always travel, I always assume there's an ATM wherever I'm going. I, if I need money, I, I'll withdraw it. I don't like traveling with large amounts of cash because I've had a bad experience before and I lost a sizable sum of money. So I was there and I didn't have cash, basically. So the guy who, who checked my landing, when I was filling in my landing card, he asked me for $300. I told him I didn't have, but if he can get me to an ATM, I'll withdraw $300. You understand? I understand how it works in Africa. I'm not here to argue with you. You understand? It's your country. So if you say you, you need $300 to let me, fine, I'll pay you $300. I'm not complaining. And then he tried to, and then he disappeared. Said he was going to try and get me through to, to an ATM. He asked me, are, are you going to give us any trouble? I said, no, I won't give you any trouble. And then he went and then he made, he did like he was doing some power move, talking to people, talking, and then he disappeared. 30, 40 minutes, I didn't see him. By this time, everybody else who had come with me on the flight has already gone through and it's just pretty much me and a few people left. So I, now, I then went to the lady at the booth. Okay, I explained my situation to her because I believe I hadn't done anything wrong. I'm not hiding, you understand? I'm here legally. I called the Zimbabwean embassy before I came. So it's not as if there should be any problem, you understand? I showed her my passport and then she goes, oh, you're a Nigerian, so you need a visa. You're here illegally. And I'm like, that's a Ghanaian, that's a Ghanaian passport. So I don't like, and based on your own information from your embassy, I was told that the airline is, is the gatekeeper. If the airline is happy to board me, I won't have a problem. I say, oh no, you're in Nigeria, you need a visa. And she just wasn't, like, I even offered her that, okay, if you can, like, if you can get me to an ATM, 
that I'll leave. I even found out five hundred dollars. Like instead of three hundred, like the guy was asking, I'll give five hundred. You understand? Just because I know how it is in Africa. All all, all this is money that they're looking everywhere for. in Africa. Yeah. She said no. She just wasn't interested, and that should have been the first signal to me. Actually, something else is going on here. But for whatever reason, it just didn't click. That why on earth would somebody who doesn't know you and who doesn't care about you be so eager to kick you out of their country? You understand? Even when you're offering them probably what they don't make officially in three months. You understand? And then they went and locked, they processed me for removal, took me to the Ethiopian Airlines office, made them change my flights to that night, my return flights to that night. And then they took me to that room, cell, whatever it was, the detention area, and then they locked me in there. So I was in there with this lady from Uganda, who, I mean, it was the same problem we had, but in her case, you, you know, she's a full Ugandan citizen, and Uganda is it's visa-free to Zimbabwe, but she didn't give them the $300. That was how wow. I finished too. And then in her case, she went, she started arguing with them. When they, when they asked for the $300, she started fighting with them that I'm visa free. Why are you asking me for money? So that was our offense. So anyway, that this happened around maybe 2, 2.30 p.m. in the afternoon, local time in the afternoon. And I was there three, four, five, six, seven, eight. It was around eight, getting toward nine local time that finally, I think. The panic finally set in because I had tried calling, I had made calls, sent messages, tried to make things work. Nothing was moving. And eventually I decided my last play here is to do an SOS Hail Mary tweet, basically. Fortunately for me, the airport Wi-Fi was working because I don't know what would happen if that airport Wi-Fi wasn't working. Because <laughs> it didn't work all day. It didn't work all day. But during in that evening, for some reason, it started working. Fortunately, it worked. Unfortunately, on my flight from Addis, I had charged my phone. So I still had a good 60, 60 something percent charge on it, thankfully. That tweet was what did it, was what did the magic for me because they started getting international pressure. And then after like an hour after I sent the tweet, they came to my to the cell. Then they, they allowed me to use the bathroom for the first time since they locked me in there. And then eventually around half past midnight, it was when my the, the flight going back to Addis took off. So they just sort of pushed me onto the flight. They didn't even give me my passport, but they gave my passport to the pilot, you know. But what was what was interesting was um, after after I got to Ethiopia, and then I checked I checked my messages and I checked Twitter and whatnot. I realized that apparently the narrative that had been going around in Zimbabwean government circles was that I was a journalist who had come to cause trouble. Oh wow. So that's what I mean when I say that I underestimate the extent to which information travels between the bad actors. Because what I what somebody who is in the know, right? Somebody who works in the in I won't say where he works, but he's a Zimbabwean anyway, informed me that they were actually having conversations with the Nigerian High Commission. Now, bear in mind that I wasn't traveling with a Nigerian passport and I wasn't traveling from Nigeria. There was no basis on which to return me to Nigeria. And returning me to Nigeria would have been in violation of international law, because I'm a refugee, right? There's a law of refoulement, which states that you can't return someone to the country they, they ran away from when they're a refugee, right? So I ran away from Nigeria and claimed political asylum elsewhere. So you can't return me to Nigeria. It's violation of international law. But apparently, they were having that conversation with the Nigerian High Commission. I don't know how far along they got in the process of having that conversation, but they were having that conversation. I think it was my tweets that might have saved my life, basically. So 
Then the Zimbabwean um, Minister of Information, a guy called George Charamba, then came out on Twitter that following morning and started accusing me of being an agent of imperialism, sponsored journalist, agent of the West, I'm here to carry out regime change operation, blah, blah, you know, all the usual stuff they always accuse white journalists of. That's what I was being accused of, which was such a, such a weird, weird place to be. And then the permanent secretary at the Ministry of Information, a guy called Nick Mangwana, then issued a statement a few hours later saying that um, any foreign journalist who is coming to Zimbabwe to cover the elections, because this is the election season, that any journalist coming to Zimbabwe for the elections shouldn't pretend to be a tourist, but that they should rather go and get a work visa. Wow. In other words, they genuinely believe that I, I, was, I came to Zimbabwe to, to work on the story. I mean, I don't know why anyone would think that. I, I don't think there's any story I've done in my life that has, that has gone beyond. I think the, the two extremes I've done are Cote d'Ivoire and Cameroon. And even that Cameroon is only because that's a border with Nigeria, because my platform is called West Africa Weekly. I tend to focus on just West Africa. So why would I go all the way to Zimbabwe to work on the story? What's waiting concern me and Zimbabwe? <laughs> well, <laughs> what I can tell you is that that tweet was what saved you. Like that's why I'm going, to, I'm going to leave it at that because I know a lot of us were worried. What I was, I thought that they got you. I was, I was like, man, we all made calls did but I was so sure that how could you have made? I was so upset. I'm telling you, but who made you put it up like this? When you when you underestimate, yeah, when you underestimate yeah. certain things, it puts you in this. Maybe, but the lesson has been learned. Yes, some yes, you're, you're never going to see, I'm never going to die. Yeah, you're, you're 33, you've not done anything yet. Trust me, there's still a lot to be done. There's still a lot to be done. You're doing a lot of good work. I mean, it's just unimaginable that you're exposing on Tinumbu, not one Nigerian newspaper who have carried that story in the past and all that, even when everybody knows the truth. But what I'll tell you is keep the flag flying, keep doing the work, you're a patriot, and uh, God's got you, man. Thank you, David, for coming to Atlanta to discuss. Next week, I'm going to come to you with another fantastic topic. Where I've been talking to David, like you know, he's a wonderful guy. And David is not just a Nigerian patriot. He's a genuine ambassador of Africa and young people all over the world. He's doing extraordinary things. The bad people don't like him. Everybody, as long as you're not bad, you like David. Take care, David. One love. We'll always call you again anytime we need you to shed more light. Upsurge cools in Africa, the onus is on the people. Vox Populi, Vox Day. That's the Atlanta Discourse Day. Voice of the people, voice of God. If the people support it, it's always very difficult to obtain it. So we always have an opinion here too, and that's what we think. We think nobody can attack Niger, nobody. I don't think it's going to work. With all the Burkina Faso, Mali, and Guinea support, it's not really going to happen. Nigeria doesn't have the teeth to do that right now. Those days are gone. As a country, we are battered. Nigeria is battered almost beyond repairs. We have our own issues. There's a lot of political and economic instability. So it's a no-no. So I think the the talk itself was done in a hurry, just like the full subsidy without too much thinking. All right. Yeah. Thank you, Vias. Thank you once again. Thank you, David. See you next week. Bye. Thank you for Thanks. having me. All right.